0: Section 60 of The Toilers of the Sea. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapter 10 The Forge. The storehouse completed, Gilliatt made his forge. The second cavity selected by Gilliatt offered a den, a sort of narrow but deep gut. He had had an idea of lodging there, but the north wind blew so incessantly and so obstinately in this passage that he had been obliged to give it up. This draft had suggested to him the idea of a forge. Since this cavern could not be his chamber, it should be his workshop. To force the obstacle to serve one is a great stride towards triumph. The wind was Gilead's enemy. Gilead undertook to make it his servant. What is said of certain men called jack-of-all-trades and good at none be said of cavities in the rock what they offer they do not give one rock cavity is a bathing room but it allows the water to flow off through a fissure another is a chamber but without a ceiling another is a bed of moss but wet another is an armchair but of stone the forge which gilead wished to establish was sketched out by nature But nothing was more difficult to accomplish than to conquer this rough draft and render it manageable and to transform this cavern into a workshop with three or four large stones hollowed out in funnel shape and terminating in a narrow fissure chance had there created a vast shapeless bellows much more powerful than those huge old forge bellows fourteen feet long which gave bellow at every puff 98,000 inches of air. Here it was quite a different matter. The proportions of the hurricane are not to be calculated. The excess of power was an embarrassment. It was difficult to regulate this blast. The cavern had two inconveniences. The wind traversed it from end to end, also the water. It was not the waves of the sea, but a small perpetual trickle, more resembling dripping than a torrent. The foam, dashed incessantly upon the reef by the surf, but sometimes more than a hundred feet into the air, had finally filled with seawater a natural cask, situated in the lofty rocks which overlooked the excavation. A little in the rear, the overflow of this reservoir formed in the cliff a slender waterfall, an inch in width which descended perhaps four or five fathoms. A contingent of rain was added. From time to time, a passing cloud emptied a shower into this inexhaustible reservoir, which was always overfull. This water was brackish and not drinkable, but limpid though salt. The fall trickled gracefully from the extremities of the hairweed as from the tips of locks of hair. It occurred to Gilliatt to make use of this water to regulate the draft. By means of a funnel made of two or three pieces of planks, nailed together and adjusted in haste, one of which had a shut-off, and of a very large bucket placed beneath as a lower reservoir, without checking or counterbalance, only completing the arrangement by a nozzle below and suction-holes above, Gilliatt, who was, as we have already said, something of a blacksmith and mechanic, succeeded in devising an apparatus to serve in place of the forged bellows, which he did not possess less perfect than what is now called a cognardel, but less rudimentary than what was called in the Pyrenees a trompe. He had some rye flour. He made paste of it. He had some untarred manila rope. He turned it into oakum. With this oakum and paste and a few bits of wood, he stopped up all the fissures in the rocks, leaving only a small air passage made from a small piece of the tube to a powder flask which he had found on the Durland, and which had served to load the signal-gun with. This air-nozzle was directed horizontally upon a large flagstone where Gilliatt located the forge hearth. A stopper, made from a bit of sail-cord, closed it when needful. After this Gilliatt piled up wood and coal on this hearth, struck his steel on the rock itself, dropped the spark on a handful of tow, and with it he ignited the wood and the coal. He tried the draught. It worked admirably. Gilliatt felt the pride of a cyclops, master of air, of water, and of fire. Master of the air! He had given to the wind a sort of lungs, created in the granite a respiratory apparatus, and changed the draught into a pair of bellows. Master of water! Of the little cascade he had made a trompe. Master of fire! From this inundated rock! he had caused flames to flash the excavation being nearly everywhere open to the sky the smoke dispersed freely blackening the overhanging cliff these rocks which seemed forever made for foam grew black with soot gilliatt took for his anvil a large boulder of very close grain which presented nearly the desired form and dimensions it was a very dangerous base as it was liable to split by blows. One of the extremities of this block, which was rounded and terminated in a point, could, in case of need, take the place of the bicorn conoid, but the other, the pyramidal horn, was lacking. It was the ancient stone anvil of the troglodytes. The surface, polished by the waves, had almost the firmness of steel. Gilliatt regretted that he had not brought his anvil. As he had not been aware that the Durand had been cut in twain by the tempest, he had hoped to find the carpenter's chest and all his ordinary tools in the forecastle. Now, it was precisely the forepart which had been carried away. The two excavations found on the reef by Gilliatt were close together. The storeroom and the forge communicated with each other. Every evening, when his day's work was finished, he supped on a little biscuit softened in water a sea-urchin, a hermit-crab, or some sea-chestnuts, the only game possible among these rocks, and, shivering like the knotted rope, he ascended to sleep in his hole on the Grand Douvre. The sort of abstraction in which Gilead lived was increased by the very material nature of his occupations. Reality in strong doses frightens. Corporeal labor, with its innumerable details, detracted nothing from his amazement at finding himself there and being engaged in his present work, but the very singularity of the task undertaken by Gilead maintained him in a sort of ideal and twilight region. It seemed to him at moments that he was dealing blows with his hammer in the clouds. At other moments it seemed to him that all his tools were weapons. He had the singular feeling of a latent attack which he was restraining or preventing. Untwisting ropes, unraveling threads from a sail, propping two planks against each other seemed like fashioning weapons of war. The thousand minute cares of this case of salvage came at last to resemble precautions against intelligent aggressions, very thinly disguised and very transparent. Gilead did not know the words which rendered the ideas, but he perceived the ideas. He felt himself less and less a workman, and more and more a man of war. He was there in the character of subduer. He almost understood it. A strange enlargement for his mind. Moreover, there was about him, as far as the eye could reach, the immense vision of wasted labor Nothing is more disquieting than to behold the diffusion of forces working in the unfathomable and in the limitless. One seeks the object of these forces. Space always in movement, the indefatigable water, clouds which ever seem in haste, the vast obscure effort, all this convulsion is a problem. What is this perpetual trembling doing? What do these gales construct? What do these shocks build? These shocks, these sobs, these howls, what do they create? With what is this tumult occupied? The ebb and flow of these questions is as eternal as the sea." Gilead knew what he was doing, but the agitation of the vast plain confusedly perplexed him with its enigma, unconsciously to himself mechanically imperiously by pressure and penetration without any other result than being unconsciously and almost fiercely dazzled Gilliatt, being a dreamer blended with his own work the prodigious useless labor of the sea how in fact can one be there and escape the mystery of the frightful toilsome waves how help meditating so far as meditation is possible on the vacillation of the waves the wrath of the foam the imperceptible wear and tear of the rock the senseless breathing of the four winds what terror for the thought is that perpetual recommencement the ocean well the denades clouds all that pain for nothing for nothing no but oh unknown thou alone knowest why End of chapter 10. The Forge